$30 million for 51% of this business? That just doesn't make any sense to me to buy a business that already is $50 million in debt. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, January 8th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I discuss the death rattle of The Messenger, the ambitious media startup that's now desperately seeking a multi-million dollar cash infusion to stay afloat. We also talk about the lifeless 2024 presidential campaign, which so far has been a dud for the business and lifestyle of campaign journalism. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it is Media Monday, and I'm joined today by John Kelly for my first Media Monday since 2024 began. John, how you doing, buddy? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Peter. Uh, what were some of your 2024 resolutions? Um, I talked about this. Uh, some I would not like to share on a public podcast. Um, mm. I want to. I want to. You will hate this, but mm. I want to spend more quality time with our dog Boone. I feel like I, mm. he, he annoys me sometimes during the day when I'm working and I need to be nicer to him. And I want to, I want to travel. How to about your human specific, uh, uh, okay, travel. <laughs> I want to cover the shit out of this campaign for puck.news. How's that? There we go. Now we're talking. How about you? You know, I'm not a big resolution person. Um, yeah, me neither. That's sort uh, of what I'm saying. Like if you have a resolution, like you can do it any time of the year, you can snap into it. Discipline and goals are a year-round thing, not just a New Year's thing. That that's sort of my now we're talking. Take on it. Yes, yeah. Less sports on the powers inspired that be. Inspired by Gary Media V. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy New Year, buddy. I'm glad to see you. <laughs> you too, man. Hey, I want to get into a few things. We're a week away from the Iowa caucuses, and I just have this rant take theory that this whole campaign for the media has been a total dud. There's no stars this cycle. People don't care. Disaster. We'll talk about that later. Uh, I also want to talk about the messenger in, in mm. very dire financial straits. But before we get into all that, real quick, we hired a new CEO at Puck, did we not? I read this in the Wall Street Journal last Friday. Where'd that scoop come from? Uh, big, exciting news. In fact, uh, today, Monday, January 8th, is Sarah Personette's first day as the CEO of Puck. Uh, I first met Sarah, I'd say he's Six months ago, this is it was a, a six month search. We started it in in July, and um, Sarah was the chief customer officer at Twitter. Uh, previously, she resigned when Elon Musk took control of the company. Uh, she was previously the head of marketing at uh, Facebook before before mm. it became Meta, and she was the president of Universal McCann uh, earlier in her career. Briefly, the uh, COO of Refinery Twenty Nine. Unbelievably pedigreed 
uh, executive, um, as connected and kind and smart as anyone I've ever met. Uh, We're truly thrilled this is a, a transformative moment in our company. For anyone who's run an executive search, it is a fascinating process. Um, <laughs> I think we, it came up a couple, a couple times on this show, you know, we, uh, we talked about the Washington Post CEO search. And you know, I, I learned from our search, we had a number of candidates who were, who were involved in both. Um, but it's a, it's a really fascinating process. It's sort of like a professional version of The Bachelor, you know, you, you meet somebody, and you get to know them really quickly. And you're making a really important decision about, you know, uh, entering into a personal and professional uh, relationship over a number of years, in, in you know, mm-hmm. what are certainly the, the most important professional years of our lives. And I got to tell you, man, I knew from the very second of our first Zoom, this was the person we had to find a way to uh, to hire her, to, to, to bring her to puck. And um, there's nothing more thrilling than um, when you get your first choice and Sarah starts today. So this is this is a really, really exciting big deal for our company. I love to hear that. And, and that Wall Street Journal story also mentioned something that warms my heart. John Aran will be joining puck to do the business of sports, which I'm hyped about as we continue to grow. Yeah. John starts later this month. So, John, I want to ask you about The Messenger. This has been something you've loved talking about since the very get-go mm-hmm. on this podcast. The Messenger, founded by Jimmy Finkelstein, launched last year with a pretty audacious theory of the case when it comes to media, which is building something that is ad-supported, scaling it, you know, relying on SEO and social and search uh, and, and, you know, promising to cover news without bias. And that that part is admirable. But (laughs) it seemed wacky when it started because, you know, we're talking about our business here, Puck, like we're in a a moment where new media businesses are subscriber-based or they have a new model like ours does, which is sort of a hybrid, but, or their niche, the sort of BuzzFeed Huffington Post chasing scale model of media seems to be dying and probably withered out years ago. And here we are, a year later after their launch, they are, according to the New York Times, Ben Mullen had a story about this the other day, down to about $2 million in operating (laughs) funds at the moment. Uh, They are seeking a $20 million investment. Sarah Fisher scooped- 30, 30. Sorry, $30 million investment. Sarah Fisher scooped last week that a bunch of conservative buyers are eyeing a purchase of the messenger at a $60 million valuation. I have so many questions here. Uh, by the way, it says that this conservative investor group, before I go on, met with Finkelstein at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> and it includes a bunch of uh, people who have backed sort of MAGA properties. Not, some of these people aren't, aren't bozos, by the way. I saw some of the names. But can you just like build a company uh, one year and scale it to like a certain amount of eyeballs and suddenly be valued at $60 million? Like, how does that work? I don't even know where to start. This is the this is the, the craziest story. I love this story. There's, there's so much to remark on. It's funny we're talking now. I actually remember a year and a half ago sitting uh, where I'm, uh, where I am right now in, in my sort of office-ish nook. I remember having a, a Zoom with Jimmy um, Finkelstein and he was in the early days of this. He hadn't started yet, hadn't announced it. And he was, you know, looking for some advice and we're talking about it. And I 
remember he was in Palm Beach. There was some expensive piece of modern art behind him, and he was explaining to me. And I just thought, "What are you talking about?" I mean, this, <laughs> it sounded it, it sounded like Quibi having an affair with CNN. Plus, it was just possibly the worst idea I'd ever heard in my life being put forward by a guy who had some success. And the part that also just you know buzzed me uh, was. That his partner was Richard Mad Dog Beckman. And I know I've gone on about this before, but I have to do it again. For people who, uh, of our vintage who started mm-hmm. their career at Condé Nast, Mad Dog was the guy, he was the CMO of the company, he'd been the publisher of Vogue. There's a lot of bad behavior. You don't need me to tell you. You can just look it up. Um, if ever you're in the elevator and, and you thought you saw Bob Hoskins, you know, caked in a cloak of gin, up oh, there was Mad Dog um, in the middle of the <laughs> afternoon. Uh, t- truly just um, just a, a, ba- a bad hombre. Um, and I cannot believe he's still at work. He briefly worked at, um, at Vice, but I-, I cannot believe that Jimmy brought him along this journey to build this company. This was like trying to build your $100 million dream house on the San Andreas fault line. It couldn't have been a, a, a more ill-conceived concept here. To build a nonpartisan newsroom, yes, I agree with you, Peter, that's a, a, a lovely idea, except that, you know what, by the way, brother, it exists in many places, like the Financial Times and Reuters and the AP. There, there, There's no paucity of this, I'm, I hate to say. It's been done, and it's out there. They wanted to build a company based on scale traffic, even though look no further than Vice, Fox, BuzzFeed, and the, the you know the recent challenges at Business Insider to find out that you know what that's a horrific idea. Instead of coming up with a concept and then scaling it over time, they hired hundreds of people out of the gate. They raised fifty million dollars. I think a lot of it was Jimmy's own money. Apparently, Josh Harris who just bought the Commanders. Uh, you know, one of the Apollo partners put some money in. Although, yeah, uh, that my, worried me a little bit that that Harris was involved in the messenger. That, that gave me some, well, that you know what, me it must have been Commanders. insurance. <laughs> I have to assume it's it's, it's schmuck insurance, and um, you, you know, here's one tell. Honestly, when you look at the investors in a media company, and it's all rich individuals, warning flag: you want to see institutions. You don't want to see rich guys passing around the plate. That means that no one's serious, no one's doing the diligence. It's not a real business. Fifty million dollars went into this. They hired immediately. They Beckman in his in insane visions of grandeur said they'd make a hundred million dollars through their first year. What? Give me a break. This is crazy. Axios took six years to make a hundred million dollars and that's an incredible success and it's over five hundred million dollars. Anyway, so yes, did it all turn into a disaster? Yes, quickly too. The company spent forty something of its million dollars in operating capital. It's down to one point eight according to the Times. What is astonishing to me is that the other $10 million they spent was on office space in Washington and Palm Beach. What? $10 million on <laughs> leases? Are you crazy? This is a startup. I'm not going to tell you what Puck pays for its office in Chelsea, but I can assure you it's a <laughs> p- profound fraction of that. I mean, this is just l- ludicrous um, fiduciary impropriety. And the idea that Jimmy would raise $30 million in rescue capital for a valuation of $60 million on a company that has $5 million in revenue and already $50 million in debt. So you're saying you're just wiping out all the debtors in game six million? Sorry, buddy. I, I, um, I took math in high school, too. There is not a way possible, even with all the brilliant, you know, sort of debt-to-equity convertible note structures that, that a, a genius banker can put in, where that makes sense. This thing is toast. I cannot imagine why anyone want to save it. You know what's also interesting, too? Everyone 
who, no, I, I shouldn't say everyone, many, many, many people who took those checks to join the messenger didn't believe it was ever going to work. There are a lot of guys who were paid twice their previous salary. Many of them were, were already out of work, and mm. they were just taking Jimmy's money. And You're talking they about had no the rooting this. I'm talking about the reporters. Yes, uh, yes, I, I, absolutely. I think they all th- viewed it as a check. I, I, I in fact, I'd actually um, one comparison yeah. you might make is to the uh, the Daily. Remember that that Murdoch era sort of tablet um, oh, newspaper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like a sort of terrible idea lying in plain sight. Uh, it, it was an experiment, right? It was a forty million dollar experiment that Murdoch made in the late aughts, early teens, uh, as news was moving digital, and he started a, a publication that was only on iPad or and guess what he folded it a couple years later and but he got people to show up um, a number of, of big name people because they were happy to take his money that was what was happening here and I think everyone believed they'd get through the election cycle and then the company would flatline and it turns out they didn't even get there that's so interesting you said that about the reporters like my one of my observations about a lot of political reporters is there's not a lot of uh, interest or savvy about the business side of media companies. Like, you know, I was surprised to see some people go work at the messenger because the business model was so shady. <laughs> but on the flip side, yeah, if they were sure. paying that much money and they could double the salary of somebody working at like CNN or the Hill or whatever, you could, I could see people. Yeah. They were paying half a million dollars for, to for a short reporters. minute. Yeah, I, I heard a half million dollars to some a half million dollars to some reporters. So oh, um, they were paying uh, that may be at the higher end, but but large salaries, fifty million dollars is a lot of money to spend that in one year. Think about it. I mean, you're writing enormous uh, enormous checks now. Obviously, if you think of the size of the staff, I think they started with 120 people. So not everyone's getting that, but it was a money job, Peter. So I don't yeah. think people are uh, are tremendously surprised yes it's funny that jimmy's hosting the um the recapitalization auction from mar-a-lago and that they're trying to find uh, a right-wing buyer for this but i gotta tell you if you're like the parlor guy you don't need this you know there are uh, plenty of other ways to to get a, a better bang for your buck so you think they are just destined to fail here here's the actual number by the way from from that ben mullen piece uh, in the New York Times, that they have told potential investors they only have $1.8 million in cash on hand at the end yep. of December and lost $38 million last year. How how, how much farther can you go with $1.8 million on hand? Like a presidential campaign would die yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I've had conversations with media executives g- guessing what the um, the cash burn uh, situation looks like at the messenger for, for a long time. And look, $50 million, let, let's, let's lop off the 10 for the... Uh, the 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 Jimmy real estate in um, Palm Beach in Washington, forty million dollars over twelve months, give or take. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's five million dollars a month, right? Four million dollars a month, mm. and you have one two week payroll left on on your books. That's what you have left. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, they laid off a couple dozen people to buy more time. You know, when companies do layoffs is because they're trying to buy time for payroll. That That's the, the ultimate reason here. And so they probably extended their burn rate a little bit further. But to your point, like they're absolutely having, it, it's stunning they didn't have these desperation conversations weeks and months earlier. Just, the whole thing just seems so profoundly um, irresponsible from the, the point of view of a fiduciary. If your company, and I guess maybe he's the majority shareholder, but if your company 
is that cash strapped and you need what it seems like a bridge loan or an emergency financing to go through, then these things take time. Um, they take days to negotiate the term sheet, then you've got to negotiate the long form. It, it, this doesn't happen overnight. And the terms that were floated in the Times, and I have to assume that that was kind of what was going on here, right, is that there were, there were sort of floating terms to, to see if uh, there's a marketplace for it. $30 million for 51% of this business? That just mm. doesn't make any sense to me to buy a business that already is $50 million in debt, like you're you're, I mean, if you think about that in, in, in practical terms, uh, imagine what that would look like. And in, 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 in a real estate situation, you would just, you'd walk away. You'd, um, mm-hmm. you'd put your money towards something else. So I, I, I don't see this one. I really, really don't. Uh, the only thing so far I'll give them a shout out for is they are surfacing in search. Like their SEO person does a pretty good job. Every time I Google something, I get a hit from <laughs> a messenger yeah. story. John, when we come back after the break, I want to ask you about this snoozer of a presidential <laughs> campaign. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to the Powers of Be, everybody. Democracy might be at stake in 2024. It might be the end of the world, uh, depending on your perspective here. Mm. But from a campaign journalism perspective, holy shit, man, like this campaign has been so boring. And let me explain what I mean by that. The guiding principle, uh, whether we admit it or not, if you're a campaign journalist, is you like the horse race. You like competition. You like it when people come from behind. You like it when the polls show that things are close. This is why you're seeing so much outsized coverage of Nikki Haley's quote-unquote surge in New Hampshire because she's doing well in New Hampshire, although nowhere else against Donald Trump. The Trump campaign has sort of, they've done a pretty good job of moderating Trump's exposure. Like, he definitely does some rallies, but they keep him (laughs) back home at Mar-a-Lago a lot, too. Ron DeSantis fizzled. Uh, so that's on the Republican side. No one else is sort of, you know, plenty of people have had the little moments like Vivek, but no one has proved themselves able to compete with Donald Trump. And then on the Democratic side, you've gotten a, an incumbent, but also an incumbent who's 80, 81 years old and, yep. you know, also pretty boring to cover. And that was sort of the reason he won, quite frankly. He was he was safe and boring, but Biden has never been beloved by reporters uh, they don't think he gives them enough action at the White House or on the campaign trail. His his team is very leak-proof. And Biden himself can be sort of contemptuous of reporters at times as well. So 
I've, I've been thinking about this in recent days because Iowa is a week away. And like typically, you know, news organizations relocate to Des Moines. The, the state is swarming with reporters right now. Yes, there are reporters out there, but like much less so than usual. There seems to be much less interest on the part of viewers and the public in this campaign, in part because of news avoidance and tune out uh, ever since Trump left office. And there's also no reporting stars this cycle. I mean, the closest I can think of from a mainstream media perspective would be like Dasha Burns at NBC, who's gotten a lot of access to the Republican candidates, including Ron DeSantis. You know, in past campaigns, John, like th- I'm thinking back to 2016, like like Maggie Haberman and Josh Dossie like had stellar reporting careers before 2015 and 2016, but they became like national figures. Mm -hmm. Katie Turr, Hallie Jackson, David Farenthold. These people became household names based on the campaigns. In 2020, there was the pandemic. You had less of that, but you know, during the democratic primaries, you had like Stead Herndon and Matt Flegenheimer and like Alexi McCammon. Like people were climbing the ladder based on their performance of covering campaigns. And I say this as a former TV embed, like back in the day at CNN, like being a campaign embed for one of the networks was traditionally a way to climb up the ladder, to get exposure, to impress your bosses, to gain a following on social media. John Berman at CNN was an embed. I was an embed. Like there's just like so many people in TV news who were campaign embeds back in the day. And this cycle, because the campaigns have been so uninteresting and all the challengers to an incumbent and a quasi-incumbent have been so feckless, <laughs> ipso facto, the embeds and reporters covering those campaigns have kind of been irrelevant. I'm just curious what you think about all this, because I, I think we're seeing it too in, in the debate ratings and the town hall ratings that some of these TV networks are, are, are holding. It's just, man, I don't think anyone really cares outside of Iowa what's happening in Iowa. <laughs> Well, I, I would zoom out even a one level further. If you look back at the last quarter century, and this harkens back to our, our previous conversation topic, th- there there's a very clear list of media companies that launched into the world based off of presidential elections from you know from Fox News in the in the Bush era to the Huffington Post, Politico, BuzzFeed. Yeah. Like th- these were these were companies that 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 came into being by covering elections. That's how they went mainstream. It was part of the business strategy. I think Jimmy actually sort of thought that that was going to be one of the ways the messenger got a toehold mm. into the world. So it wasn't even just the the journalists or the personalities, although that's certainly true. And I think the, the, the biggest example is what, what happened to Joe and Mika in 2008, right? When, when you know, Morning Joe sort of started on the, um, the Obama-Hillary uh, Democratic primary and, you know, <laughs> here we are all these years later. Um, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And, you know, now... There's no appetite for this. Um, I suffered through on Thursday night the the double barrel town hall on CNN with DeSantis and Haley, um, and then Caitlin Collins did the first one, and Aaron Burnett did the second one. You can't underscore the lethargy involved in all of this. There's no enthusiasm about the undercar. There's no enthusiasm about the candidates. Um, I think that there, there's a lot of disgust uh, a, a among the voting public. And it does seem like there's just there's lethargy and boredom um, mm-hmm. among the, the journalistic classes. It, it's actually, it's been interesting to me, you know, we, we've talked about the Washington Post a lot on this show as it goes through it, whatever it's going through now, these sort of doldrums here. This is an election cycle. This is the the period once every four years when this paper is supposed to be an electric national product. 
And yet, I can't think of the last time I read a, a Josh Dossie story, right? I mean, it, 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 during the Trump era, every two or three days, there was some harrowing, you know, quadruple mm-hmm. byline piece. Yeah, but also in, two, in 2008, and, dude, in 2008 as well, which was the greatest campaign ever before the, the Trump campaign. Sure, and sure. Like, in, in 2020, the stakes were really high. Like, the, like people were tuning into this stuff. Sure. No, the, the, t- totally. And the um, it, I don't know if the... It's funny, the, the Times published a, a multi-byline piece yesterday with some of the people that we mentioned before that I, I thought actually just um, cherry-picked a bunch of uh, things that Tara had about a, a, a month ago. But, and I'm not trying to uh, criticize anyone, but I, I do think the people who are prof- who are professionally engaged, uh, the professionally engaged storytellers of these topics, they've seen it all before and they're just bored by it. And that that's coming through on this end. And it's, on some level... It is hard to blame them, uh, but the other piece of it too is that you know we've discussed this. Biden is incredibly stage managed for all the obvious reasons. Mm. So is Trump, and there's not much to say. You know, it, it, the you're right. 08 and 16 were aberrant for a couple of reasons, but the the biggest one being that they the personalities were just extraordinary. The dynamics inside of the Clinton campaign, the dynamics inside of Trump world. The um, all these powerful new forces uh, that that Obama brought with him, and there's not really any of that now. Biden is is um, uh, surrounded by apparatchiks. Trump is actually surrounded by the, the, the Susie Wiles, uh, Chris Savita crowd is is much more bureaucratic and functional than ever before, and it seems like C-SPAN time. Yeah, and another thing I should note too is like the media environment has changed dramatically. We, I feel like we reached a tipping point somewhere in the last four years where eyeballs definitively shifted away from the TV screens and toward the small screens. And it's harder to become a quote-unquote media star in that world. Like the media stars mm-hmm. of the cycle, you could argue, are like podcasters and like like content sure. creators on the internet, like Lex Friedman and Brian Tyler Cohen and, and just lots of names that, you know, people in mainstream newsrooms might never have heard of, but who reach substantially more people. Um, the and also, guys, it, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also in a partisan environment. And so like, you know, if you're a Republican candidate, your incentive isn't to talk to CNN or NBC or the New York Times. Like you're going to go all in on sort of right-wing media echo chamber on the internet. And so that dynamic uh, removes... <laughs> Uh, access for reporters and if you remove access you remove scoops and you remove attention and it's just you know the the world is just so atomized that it's it's hard to climb up the ladder in the way that I was able to in in 2008 um, or 2012 and like it just it's just harder out there to be a mainstream media reporter and climb up the ladder and that let me let me let me uh, put a pin in that because I'm, I'm curious <clears throat> I mean leave um ask you this sort of directly and squarely there's no question that in 2016 uh, a number of reporters saw the opportunity to create real wealth for themselves right i mean to to truly get mm-hmm. genuinely famous and there's nothing wrong with that we're we are very nope, pro success sure. here and I, I think that there was um i think there were some aspersions cast initially but uh at the end of the day many went along with it as they should have do, do you just think that reporters as a, as a sort of professional class have gotten smarter about this and and don't see the opportunity for themselves professionally in the, in this cycle? Is is that sort of playing into it a little bit? No, I mean, I think, um, look, if Trump is involved, there's opportunity. 
people are still getting Trump book deals, not at the volume that they were in 2016 or 2020 uh, in that window. But if you are a political reporter, the Super Bowl is still covering a presidential campaign. Um, I guess I'm just saying that like this cycle looks like Bush v. Gore in in terms of just public interest and excitement. Again, while also saying the stakes are enormously high because Trump's on the ballot. But there's nothing else you'd want to do than cover a presidential campaign and travel to Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina and try to get scoops like that. Like it's also part of that is fun, (laughs) you know, and I wrote about all this stuff uh, for the Sorensen Center for my study of Twitter and and how it sort of changed campaign coverage back in 2013. Everyone go Google it, please. But yeah, I don't I think every reporter would want to cover a campaign. I just think that the subject matter and the audience has shifted to such a degree that the potential reward professionally and financially is just not where it was even two or three years ago. Yeah, it's, um, it's sure it's boy, it, it's hard to, um, look at what we're going through here and think back to, you know, not even just 2016, but e- e- even, even 2020. Uh, and maybe it's cause we sort of all we're watching it play out from, uh, you know, in our Vori shorts from our, our living rooms. But there is a a palpable boredom um, that is that is very problematic. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually think that you know one of the one of the solutions in this may be also how uh, news organizations are constructed and how they cover these things. Because one of the other challenges that people never remark on because it's probably too in the weeds. But you know, there are probably as many people. Uh, the New York Times probably has a oh, 60 political reporters. I know, you know, between congressional, White House, et cetera. I mean, so many, it's very, very hard to break through and organize it. There's too much structure, uh, too much bureaucracy. And um, some of these big places maybe have have gotten a little bit too big. And uh, we live in a world, as you say, where more nimble, direct voices are breaking through more and more. And um, I think we'll see more of that continue. John, thank you so much, buddy. I'll see you in the Slack this week. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.